my coach. Uh, we're ready. If you want, if you want to open. Oh uh, yeah, I'm good to go. Good. All right, we'll start with Chris Ryan, followed by Bob Susie. Morning, Bill. How are you? Good, Chris. How's it going? Good. Um, want to ask you a couple questions about uh, physicality, as you referenced the Jets' physicality the other day, and a number of your defensive players have said that that's going to be one of the key attributes for your team this year. Um, how big do you see the physical battle being in this game in that realm? I don't think it's part of the game every week. and um, Certainly the Jets are a team that um, they're coached to, to play hard. They play with high effort. They're tough. They're, they play with a good level of physicality. We'll have to match that and um, you know try to exceed it. But you know they, they really do a good job on a line of scrimmage of Running the ball, um, defending the run, attacking the the pocket. Um, you know, we saw uh, Coach Law do that at uh, San Francisco, and that's the way he's training this team. Same thing with the offensive coaches, uh, with Coach Lafleur and Coach Benton on the offensive line. They were in San Francisco. We, you know, saw them their style of play. I think everybody knows what that is. They run the balls. Other than Ravens, probably as much as any team in the league, 21 personnel and all that. So I think that'll be a big part of the game. And how much of a team's physicality is, is mental? And how do you go about trying to put the group in a place where they can get to that level of physicality that you want from a mental standpoint? Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's a tough question. There's a lot of components there. There's a mental part of it, but I mean, you, you have to have a, a physical toughness, technique, style of play, you know, I mean, there's things, there's a difference between being tough and being physical, um, you know, and, and, and they're both admirable and good qualities, but you know, being physical really means to physically be able to dominate physically the guy you're playing against, whatever position that happens to be, you know. Being tough is is being tough. That doesn't necessarily correlate to you being able to overpower an opponent. So, but some of that has to do with technique. Some of it has to do with you know style of play, speed, power, explosion, strength. You know, and and the ability to transfer all those into you know force on contact. So, depending on the position, the player, his playing style, and so forth. There's I think different different ways you can see that, different components of it. Um, but it's just something that uh, certainly I think the Jets try to, to bring to the game, and um, it's important to us as well. Thanks, Bill. Yep, you're welcome. Next question, Bob Sosie, followed by Karis Lillian. Thanks, Stacy. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. Hey, Bill, I know that uh, we're only one game into this season and uh, that no game is decided in the opening quarter alone, or at least the opening drive. I'm, I'm curious, though, fast starts versus slow starts. Besides the obvious of taking the first lead or being behind from the outset, yeah, how significant is that? And how much have you invested, uh, just looking back, not only in, in the game against Miami, but really kind of over the last year plus in, in, in making a difference at the start of the first half and even the start of the second half? Yeah, well, I, I think as I think you put it well, uh, the start of everything is important. Um, it's not the final result, but it's important and it's a, a component of it. So 
the first drive is important. The first play of every drive is important. Um, being ahead in the first quarter doesn't ensure being ahead in the fourth quarter, but it's a good place to start. Um, so, again, can a slow start be overcome? You know, sure. Um, but does a good start give you an edge on, you know, now three quarters of a game instead of four quarters and you have a lead? Well, you, you know, you have an advantage. So, I think that's that's something that that you want to again get on the scoreboard. You want to try to, you know, be in second and two instead of second and ten. Or defensively, you want them in second and nine instead of second and three. So, the fast start of each each down and distance sequence affects how the rest of the sequence is going to go. And you know, those third down conversions and everybody talks about how important they are, and and they are. Um, they have a lot to do with what happened on first and second down, um, what your percentages are going to be on third down, just strictly from a, you know, a number standpoint, you still have to go and execute the play no matter what it is, but, uh, or defend it, whatever the side of this you're on, but certainly gaining an advantage on first and second down helps you on third down. So it's, um, you know, it's so therefore you have a lot of fast starts in the game, right? I mean, there's every place sort of a start of something new, uh, a new series, a new, you know, a new drive, a new set of downs. Um, but, you know, however you want to, wherever you want to draw those lines of demarcation, doing well on the first one is, and, and is, is, is a good thing. So I think all teams try to do that in one way or another. And there's definitely a psychological element of, you know, setting the tone, getting the upper hand, gaining confidence, et cetera, that comes along with, um, let's say, early success. Right. Great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Next question, Kara Sullivan, followed by Callahan. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, good morning, Bill. It's a, I have a little bit of a non-football question, but more just one of coaching. Of all the ways that you deal with the aftermath of a tough play, and I'll I'll mention Damian Harris's fumble as an example, not specific to that, but like where where in your coaching do you do you include sort of helping players navigate negative reaction to something like that? We've seen it especially at the start of this season in social media in particular. Is that part of your coaching just to help guys navigate around what might be negative reaction from the outside to a play like that? Yeah, um so, uh, Tara, first of all, you know, I, I don't really know or care anything about social media. I don't even know what's out there or isn't out there. So that's irrelevant to me. Um, but it doesn't matter. Um, we played football before there was social media and it didn't matter then either. So, but I think anytime you have a team um, that we all, you know, rely on each other, we're all accountable to each other, uh, and we all support each other, and we all make mistakes. And... We can make a mistake at the beginning of the game. We can make a mistake at the end of the game. And sometimes that gets magnified because of the timing of it. But, um, you know, there are other things that could have happened at different points in the game that would have, you know, had just as big or maybe even a bigger effect on the game. So, you know, we all, we all need to correct whatever mistakes we've made in the game and try to do better. That goes for all of us, me, the assistant coaches, um, the players, and everybody. And that's... So that's something we all feel accountable for. I mean, I know there are things in the game that 
um, uh, you know, I, I maybe could have done a better job of or maybe done differently. I think it would have affected the outcome of the game. I'm sure there, every player on the every player and coach that participated in the game feels like that. I know I felt like that when I called plays um, or even when I played. Not that I was a good player, but, you know, you still feel accountable for the things you do out there. Um, at the same time, everybody's doing the best they can. Nobody's, you know, not not doing the right thing on purpose. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. But I mean, in the end, you control your preparation. You control your effort. You control your attitude. You control your toughness. Those things are all in your control. Um, you do the best that you can with those. Um, once you let those go, then I think that's really where the problems start because now you're not. You're not doing everything you can to give yourself and your team the best chance. So, um, mistakes, no mistakes, whatever did or didn't happen, you turn the page, you move on, you prepare, you get ready for the next opportunity. Um, you do that as an individual, you do it as a unit, you do it as a team. And I think that's what we all do every week, win or lose, um, good play or bad play. I think the real, the true competitors and the true professionals that I've been around, and I've been fortunate to be around a lot of them, you approach it that way. You control what you can control. What happens, happens. If you learn from it, you learn from it. Uh, but then you move ahead to the next opportunity, the next competition, and you do the best you can in that one. So thank you for the question. Now it's good. You know, it's part of, part of competitive sports. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Kelhan, Fulberg and Bull. Hey, good morning, Bill. Andrew, how you doing? Good, thank you. Um, so I understand that no past Jets game will obviously have any bearing, <clears throat> excuse me, on what happens on Sunday. But as someone who appreciates, obviously, the history of the game, uh, and I know I've spoken about it with your team in terms of the history of the franchises and where they've come from, what has just the Patriots-Jets rivalry or series meant to you so long as you've been a part of it the last 20, 25, 30 years? And just how would you describe it? I think it's similar to other division rivalries that I've been a part of. Um, you play a team twice a year, you're both chasing the same, um, you know, goal of a division championship and then, you know, ultimately after that, but uh, what happens after that, but, you know, it's, it's a, a rivalry where you know your opponent well, they know you well, and, you know, you you have a high level of competition and respect for the other, the, the opponent, but you also go at a high level of competition because they know you so well, you know them well, and and you kind of, you know, prod and poke and look for areas to attack and and exploit um, based on, I would say, a, a, almost an intimate knowledge of, of your opponent, and they do the same, and so, um, you know, it's, it's not that all other games aren't competitive, but I think those divisional games are just a little more competitive because of the familiarity of the teams and the franchises and, and that we have. And let's say particularly, you know, with the Jets or the Dolphins last week, there's also some, you know, transfer of personnel, players and coaches from one team to another fairly recently that, uh, you know, add a, a another level of knowledge and, and – uh, information about about the opponent from kind of what it looks like from the other side of the fence that you don't always get to see um, that can you know 
can can highlight some of the, that the level of competition as well. So, but I mean, I've been in. You know, I was in Baltimore. I was in Detroit. Twelve years in the Giants. You know, so. Denver. You know, like there's those rivalries within those divisions are are very similar to the rivalries with the three teams we have in our division. Um, they're just a little tighter, a little more personal, um, a little more frequent, um, and you know, so it's a little, little, say it's a little higher energy and, and preparation level, just because of again the the reasons that I just mentioned. Thank you. You're welcome. Next question, Ben Bowen, followed by Phil Perry. Hey, good morning, Bill. Hi, Ben. Uh, I have a question that's a little out of left field. It's about roster building and, and not having to do with the game this week, but it's something I've been thinking about for a while, and it's about long snapping, actually. And uh, I was just kind of wondering, uh, and this is no uh, – with all due respect to uh, Joe Cardona and all the fine long snappers out there, but is long snapping that difficult that you need to use a roster on one player who does only that? Can't you just cross-train a few guys to do long snapping and then use – have more flexibility with that roster spot. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Ben, it's, it's an interesting conversation and one that's really, um, uh, I would say, honestly, during the course of my coaching career has has kind of traveled that, that long and winding road um, from when I came into the league. Uh, the specialist, first of all, there were no long snappers, but the specialist, the kickers and the punters, um, were frequently position players. Uh, and that's where they came from in college as well. So a lot of the good college punters and place kickers also played a position. And then uh, as time evolved, you know, starting with like Gogolak and guys like that, uh, you know, they specialized in kicking. And then you had, you know, some of the punters that specialized in punters. So uh, players like Danny White and Tom Tupa and uh, guys like that who were, you know, very good position players, um, you know, became Gino Capaletti. Uh, you know, that that evolved into specialists because of, I would say, the importance of the kicking game uh, and the number of, you know, the number of plays that the kicking game and opportunities that it provided. Uh, same thing with returners. There were very few just pure returners. Uh, I think one of the the long snapping to me changed in the mid eighties. Um, and, and really the, the key guy in that was Diossi in my opinion, because, uh, Steve was the first, the first center that really truly allowed a spread punt formation against the all out rush. Um, prior to that, uh, teams would generally pull, first of all, there wasn't that many gunners, but when teams started using gunners, they would pull one in and kick away from the free guy on the backside. Um, and that was kind of the idea of the protection was not to let the snapper block uh, against a, a nine man rush with a split player. So the, the return team would have one guy on the, the gunner that split and one guy returns. So you got nine guys rushing against um, essentially, you know, the punter who wasn't a blocker, the split guy who wasn't a blocker, and the snapper who really wasn't a blocker. So it was nine on eight. And the idea was to block the most dangerous um, eight and let the ninth guy go and punt away from him. And then 
uh, when uh, the Cowboys went to the spread punt, and then the Cardinals followed that pretty quickly, and they kept two gunners split, and the snapper blocked a guy, uh, then that created an eight-on-eight situation, but put a lot of pressure on the snapper to you know deliver the ball 15 yards deep on the money. Uh, and still block a good rusher, you know, offsetting the A-gap. I mean, we've all seen offensive linemen have trouble making that block on a pass play. And so now you're talking about a deep snap and a and a block. But as players got better at that and, and that skill became more, uh, I would say, players became more efficient at that, then, you know, teams decided to carry a long snapper rather than worry about getting a punt block. Plus, there was also the level of, consistency and durability with those players so if you lose a position player who's also a long snapper you know you're looking at some some real problems um, and that evolved into the punters for the most part becoming holders because of the amount of time that they could spend with the kickers versus having a, a wide receiver or a quarterback be the holder which again you don't see very much of that anymore um, assuming the punter is you know a capable and good enough you know has good enough hands to be the holder. Uh, and so then that kind of whole unit has really evolved into, you know, a specified snapper, a specified kicker, a spe specific punter, and generally the punter as the holder. So the three of those guys could work together all practice because they're all available. And I know, again, going back to when I first came into the league, you worked on, you know, field goals. And I mean, it was maybe you know, five minutes because that was the only time the starting center and the starting receiver or backup quarterback or whatever were available to practice that. So, like, is it that hard? Um, it's a pretty hard job. Yeah, it's a pretty hard job. It's not as hard as it used to be because you're not allowed to hit the center, especially on field goals and, and you know, run them over. And um, there are some limitations on the punt rush based on you know what the formation is and so forth but generally speaking uh but still it's it's a hard block to and and i think you see most punt rushes attack the snapper so uh they loop guys back so the center thinks he's going right but then he has to come back to the left or uh or maybe they fake like they're coming back but they don't come back so he he not only has to snap and uh so then that gets into whether you're a blind snapper and you look at the rush and just snap the ball or whether you're a look back snapper and snap it and then after the snap you have to look up and recognize what's happened and and make the proper proper block but again it's it's man-to-man -man blocking like that guy's got to block somebody um or you're a guy short so it is it is a hard job uh and the accuracy of the i would say the place kickers through the years which has gone up dramatically part of that's the surface part of that's the you know, not kicking outdoors and so forth. Part of it is the operation between, you know, the snapper, the holder, and the kicker, which I would say, generally speaking, is at a pretty high level, which it should be uh, in the National Football League. So I think if you go back and look at, you know, kicks from back when that wasn't the case, you know, you see balls rolling back and the holder coming out of a stance to catch the ball and the kind of things you see, you know, at times in a high school game and that kind of thing. There's just a much higher level of skill, uh, which there should be. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a pretty a pretty tough position, and you know nobody knows or cares who the snapper is until it's a bad snap, and all of a sudden you know, it's a front page story. So, you know, there's a decent amount of pressure on that player as well, not just to snap, but also 
as I said, to, you know, to block in punt protection. So as the roster sizes have increased, it's been a lot easier to carry that player, just like it's a lot easier to carry a true returner. And so in terms of depth and availability, um, you know, you, you really don't want to be looking for one of those players in the middle of the of any time, middle of a game or middle of a season. Um, but when you have him as, you know, a starting receiver or a starting, uh, you know, Luke Rosa, a starting tackle or, you know, whoever, those guys, and they're playing and something happens, not only do you lose a player, but, you know, you lose a, a key specialist as well. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. It's And, you know, there would be so much value in a player that could do a couple of things and save a roster spot. Um, but I would say there are so few of those players available, even to the point where, uh, and, you know, Amendola did a great job last week, but it's so rare that you even see a combination punter and place kicker. Usually it's it's one or the other, and I think part of that is, you know, at one level it's it's, you know, I'll say relatively easy to put your foot on the ball. Uh, but at this level, um, you know, the difference in kicking mechanics and punting mechanics are are so different um, that it's really hard to be good at both. Uh, but, you know, if a guy's got a good leg and he's a good athlete and, you know, he can make good contact with the ball, there's a point where, you know, high school, college, you know, maybe it's good enough. Maybe he's the best guy on the team to do that. But I'd say at this level, that's pretty – you know, that's that will be asking a lot now, you know, like Jake can punt, Jake can kick off, um, you know, Jake can kick field goals, you know, to be at the kind of level you want it to be at, to have the person split their time between the two of those, again, I think is, you know, a lot to ask. It's not, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible or unheard of, but it, it's a lot to ask, and that's why you don't see it very much. That's a good question. It's really interesting. And I'd say if you look at the evolution of those positions over the last, you know, since I've been in the league, um, but even a little bit before then, because that's really where it started to go was in the late 60s. Like I, th I think Gogolak, you know, was the first or one of the first where that trend really started to, okay, we're just going to keep a guy and all he does is kick, you know, your Premian, guys like that. Um, that that's all they did. That was a, it was a little bit unusual, um, but you know, gradually that's become the new norm. Uh, thank you, Bill. That was as thorough and in depth as I had hoped it would be. So thank you. No, you're welcome, Ben. Thanks for the question. If you have time for one more, we'll end it with Phil Perry. Hey, Bill. How are you? Good. I. Um... I did want to ask you uh, about the game here, but but also sort of about something that you mentioned earlier this week and that, you know, obviously Salah comes from a specific um, style of defense that he was running in San Francisco and has carried it over to the Jets. The corners that have been used in that system over the years, it feels like have um, relatively similar skill sets or, or physical characteristics. And I, I wanted to ask you maybe why that is for that style of defense, why those types of defensive backs work in that style and um, maybe how the Jets corners, Eccles and, and Hall kind of fit into that mold, if there is a mold. Well, I, you know, I, I think that's a, honestly probably a better, better question for Coach Sala, but because that's not really the style of defense that we play and, you know, exactly what the criteria is that they're looking for. I'm not sure that 
you know, I'm qualified to speak precisely on that. But I would just say in, in the Jets case, you know, the foundation of the base of the defense is clearly, you know, the, let's call it the Seattle three type system uh, that Pete had that uh, coach Sala worked under and so forth. But, but they've changed some of those, like they don't do everything that Seattle does. Um, they have a different, uh, a, you know, different packages, some different coverages, um, some of the things that, that Seattle did under the, let's call it the original kind of Pete, uh, Seattle three type defense, um, you know, whether it's the jets or other teams that have come from that general, you know, basic tree, you know, have branched off and either modified them based on, uh, their own philosophy, or maybe it's, you know, a combination of personnel or, uh, also just the way that the game has evolved in the last decade that maybe they feel more comfortable doing certain things that uh, either those that those defenses didn't have or they've modified the adjustments in a way that's you know easier or, or fits them better so again in the Jets case I think that's the foundation I, I'd say if you look at their defense and look at the you know the Seattle defenses in the early 2000 and you know 12 13 14 15 that Pete ran there um, th there's quite a few differences, you know, besides personnel, forget about that. There's quite a few differences there. Uh, and so I'm not saying one's better than the other. I mean, certainly San Francisco had a lot of success last year and, you know, in, in the four years that, uh, coach Salah was there, but, you know, Pete's had a lot of success doing it his way. And, you know, Dan Quinn, Gus Bradley, and all the other guys that have come from that system, you know, it's they they all kind of have their little. It's no different than the West Coast offense, in my opinion, where you know you have a certain West Coast offensive system with Coach uh, Brown going back to Cincinnati or Coach Walsh in San Francisco, and then that's evolved into where it's Coach Holmgren, Coach Gruden, you know, go right down the line, Coach McCarthy, and all the all the people that have come in through that system. Like that may be the foundation or basis for it, but. You know, there's a lot of other things that have been added to it, um, particularly the running game that varies quite a bit from team to team, even though the passing game maybe have roots in that. Again, going back to, you know, Walsh and Brown and, and those coaches, the running game was just as much part of the West Coast offense as the passing game. Now I would say that's been much more um, modified or individualized, you know, by team. So, um Sorry. No. Long no. answer and still didn't answer the question. You know, no, that's okay. a lot of long, fast corners back in Pete's system. I, I think everybody in the league likes long, fast, competitive corners. I mean, I think those guys could probably, you know, Richard Sherman and those guys could have played in any system. Um, but, you know, they, they were in that system. And, you know, I think there's examples of guys that fit that description, but also guys that, you know, didn't fit that description. You know, Trufon in Atlanta for Coach Quinn as an example. Like, you know, uh, you know, were good players that had different style of play. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not really sure that it's just has to be one way or certainly not like that anymore. All right. Interesting. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Thanks. Thank you, Coach. Thanks, everyone.